Thank you, worship team. Well, this marks the first day in my life in 40 years of ministry that I've ever worn a Pendleton shirt when I preached. It is my attempt to try to be a mountain person. And in the first... <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I won't even tell you how old this shirt is, <laughs> but it's older than some of you. So, but they but they wear like iron, don't they? They really do. So, delighted to be with you this morning. We're for those of you who joined us. We're in a study in Matthew chapter five on the Beatitudes, attitudes that should be in you. They are the marks of what it means to be a Christ follower. They are almost like the birthmarks, so that when we display these attitudes, people can point to us and say. That's one of God's kids. These are things that allow us to be a Christ follower. And uh, we've also talked about that in the Beatitudes, the Beatitude itself is like the seed, and then somewhere else in the Sermon on the Mount is the complete description or the flower of what that seed means. We have uh, said that as I respond to who Christ is, as I react to the experience I have with Christ, as I act and respond to who the person of Jesus is, that defines me as a Christ follower. It is not so much my actions, it is my reactions to things that describe that. We started over here with the idea of being poor in spirit. And we said that when a person comes to this realization, as he starts his journey with Christ and in salvation history and the history of, of, of his life, that he comes to a point somewhere in his life, he or she comes to a point where they say, I now understand that I am not just have a little bit of spirituality, I have none. I'm destitute. He has everything to offer me, I have nothing to offer him. And that breaks our heart. It causes us to mourn. To have our heart broken is what breaks God's heart, that we were on our own program, trying to live our own life independently without Him. And now we repent and say, no, I want you to come into my life. I want to be meek. I want to be under the control of the Spirit in my life. It was an equestrian term for the breaking of a wild animal. And it said in that whole series that, that, uh, that, that as I am under the ridership or the horse is under the ridership, none of his spirit, none of his talent, none of his energy is gone, but his will is now conformed to the rider. And so, in my life with Jesus Christ, I now allow him to be my Lord. And when he does that, when he comes into my life in that manner, he's not just my Savior, but he's my Lord. I now have this insatiable appetite, not just a snack appetite, but an insatiable appetite to hunger for, for righteousness. And I thirst for it. Not just a snack appetite, but a banquet appetite, a buffet appetite. Now I'm filled up with what he wants. And now, for the first time in my life, I'm able to be merciful. Well, what's the flower here? Well, the flower is on the screen. It's Matthew chapter 7. It's the first six to seven verses which says, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you'll be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about the speck in your, in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? 
How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hmm. Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to the pigs. They will trample the pearls, then turn and attack you. My goodness. Jesus said that blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The attitude that is most hardest to preach on, it is the most significant beatitude in some ways, is this beatitude today. It's the toughest one to preach on. But because I am the interim, I can say whatever I want. But it does really reveal whether or not you're following Christ. This is an acid test. We do not control Christianity. Christianity is supposed to control us. Spurgeon said, when you start defining the word mercy, it's like the person who's standing on the gallows with a rope around his neck, waiting for the trap door to open, and someone says, just a minute, I'll take his place. And the rope is lifted and put on your friend, and he takes your punishment for you. There is mercy. When we talk about mercy, we first of all have to talk about three things this morning. And the first is the definition of mercy. There are those who preach Jesus is our best friend, and he is. There are those who preach that Jesus doesn't want any to perish, and he doesn't. But it's far more than that. It's a terrible thing, it's a terrible thing the Bible says, for a person to fall into the hands of a holy God. Merciful does not mean that God is just easygoing. He overlooks everything, and, and, and it's always about God's love. I believe in God's love, believe me. But you'll never understand God's love. Hear me now. You'll never understand God's love until you understand the other side of the equation and you understand what the wrath of God is. In fact, the more you understand about the wrath of God, you really come to a better understanding of what God's love is. It's powerful. It means, when you're merciful, it means that you have the ability, that you have the desire to get into another and under a person's skin, to see with their eyes, to hear with their ears, to think with their mind, to feel with their heart. It's moving from sympathy to the ultimate point of empathy. That's why we sang this morning, there is none like you. There is none like you. You have the ability to understand me, you have the ability to see what I see, to hear what I hear, to think what I think, and to feel what I feel. Jesus, you cry with me, and you rejoice with me. And that's what he says. Blessed are those who are merciful. They shall obtain mercy. This is what Jesus did. He got right inside us. That's why I know I can go to him with anything. That's why I know he knows my thoughts. He knows my heart. He knows my ways. He became human so he could identify with me. He was tempted just like me. He wept. I do too. He went through death. I will too someday. So will you. There is nothing that touches you that has not first touched him. I love this little poster that was I saw in a little girl's room that I was visiting the family. It was one of those split posters. On this side of the, of the line, the little girl is sitting on her bed and, and the, the caption underneath the thing, it says, I'm afraid about tomorrow. On the other side of that little split was Jesus looking into that other part of the little girl and saying, don't worry, I've already been there. 
There's nothing that touches you that first has not touched him. Merciful means Jesus feels right along with me. He said, I came not to condemn the world, but that the world might through me be saved. In the book of Isaiah, he says, and he was speaking of all of Israel when he said, in all of Israel's afflictions, the Lord was afflicted as well. Mercy is not just pity. It has action attached to it. James chapter 2, verse 13 says, There will be no mercy for those who, who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when He judges you. Do you know that was in the Bible? In 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, it says, We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in His love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face Him with the confidence because we live like Jesus while we're here in this world. What was Jesus? He came among us, John 1 says, full of grace and truth. You know, I think that's probably the toughest thing in the world to do is to have this great balance between grace and truth. I mean, a lot of times we have people who are very gracious and always say things graciously, but they never seem like they really get to the point. <laughs> it's just a lot of ooey-gooey stuff. Then we got on the other side, we got a lot of people who are really truth-tellers, but when you've been in their presence, you feel like you've just been knocked down, slammed down, and kicked and bruised and everything else. And Jesus was full of grace and truth. But Jesus did not judge his ministry. He did not evaluate his ministry on the response of the people. Because if that was true, Jesus failed. Especially with the group of Pharisees. I'm sure his heart broke when he knew that the primary audience that he was to come and to give the message to of God's redemptive power was to Israel. And Israel, in the majority, rejected him. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees led the, led the stream against him. In fact, Jesus did not get a great response to being filled with grace and truth. They finally nailed him to a cross. And I say to you, what chance have you got? We don't judge our success on whether or not a person receives our grace and truth. It's wonderful if you can go into a brother and a sister that you have a wonderful relationship and you can tell them, everything and kind of confront them with their sin and all that, and they turn to you and say, thank you for coming over. I see the error of my ways. I am ready to repent. I'm ready to make this right. You're right. I owe you an apology. I was an idiot. And I want to make it right. You might leave that meeting thinking like, this was a good meeting. But typically you might get a response like this. Who do you think you are? You just lost my friendship. Well, or maybe not quite that severe, but you might say, yeah, and you, you did this. And there's defensiveness coming back. And we say, we come back and we think, somebody, our mate asks us, well, how did it go? Not very good. They accuse me of being a righteous snob and they accuse me of that I was really at fault. It was really my fault. And we feel like such failures. Now listen, our, the world's reaction to how we live, we're going to get to that. Because you remember the last beatitude? Blessed are those who are what? 
persecuted. You see, the world hates the first seven attitudes in a Christian. These first seven. We're not there yet, but I want to give you a little preview. They hate a person like that. But only you know when you have come to a point in your life where you have confronted someone and you know whether or not you had the balance of grace and truth. The judgment is Christ, not someone else, not the response of the body, not response of who you came to. It is whether or not you know in your heart whether or not you were too harsh or you were not direct enough. You know whether or not you hit that balance and you can only hit that balance in the Spirit. Now, we're going to talk about how you get that balance. We're also going to talk about what happens when you judge incorrectly. Well, the second thing that he says, not only is there a definition, but what are the characteristics of mercy? And I'm going to spend not much time on this because we've already done this in a sermon I preached on August the 26th. But it really means two things. Kind in your criticisms and judgments. And number two, always in a position of ready to forgive. We can't keep harboring things in our heart. Sometimes we're really good at holding a grudge. And you know whether or not you're doing that. I, I, don't, I can't. I wouldn't know. I can't see your heart. But God can. And oftentimes we're like that unmerciful servant that I preached about in the last Sunday of August. You know, we realize we owe, in, in terms of what we owe God in our debt, it's millions of dollars. But yet we're down here choking each other out for two bucks over something we did to each other. And so the characteristics of mercy is that I'm kind in my criticism. I'm kind in my judgments. I'm always ready to forgive. It's not just a sermon material that I'm talking about today. It's actual living that I give myself to the need of my brother or sister at that point. But the final thing is the description of mercy. And there's where I want to camp today in this third point. What does it look like when mercy's in action? Well, first of all, there's a command. You saw it there in verse 1. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Now, if a guy comes out of a 7-Eleven store with a bag of money and a gun, and he just put a bullet in the, in the, in, in the attender there at 7-Eleven, I can call that guy a thief and a murderer. That's not a judgmental attitude. That's just calling the situation correctly. I can see a guy walking down the street completely inebriated with the smell of liquor on his breath that is times ten. And he's wandering all over, bumping into people. And I can call that guy and I can say he's a drunk. And I'm not being judgmental. I'm, giving, I'm making a correct observation here. That's not what I'm talking about today. That's not what Jesus is talking about when he says, judge not lest you be judged. He's talking about personal condemnation. He's talking about judging a person's motive. I have no right to try to figure out what's in another person's heart and then be critical of that or them. It's written to stop this perpetual fault-finding. You want to judge my methods, go ahead. But my motive? Careful. I remember when I was in California, I was pastor of a church that came, I came in, I couldn't believe it. It was just a zoo. I mean, it was like, these people were talking over each other. I kept everybody on the staff. I, I didn't want to release anybody. I wanted to keep things as they were. But in the staff meeting, they were just constantly infighting, critical of each other. Well, I'd come to find out this had been going on for years. There was this, this whole spirit and that attitude of distrust, and everybody was attacking each other's motives. Finally, I had to become like Khrushchev. I took my shoe off. And I started pounding the table. 
Some of you are old enough to remember that. And they thought, this guy's flipped. He's taking his shoe off and he's pounding the table. And I said, that's enough. Here, we gotta, we're going to do a little signal. From now on, if we're going to be giving some constructive criticism towards somebody, we're going to hold our hand up. And we're going to say, I'm not attacking your, your, your motive. I'm going to hit your method for a minute. Now, I realize that some people's programs, some people's ideas, are an extension of who they are. You attack their idea, you've attacked them. Now, you can't... That's not your issue. That's their issue. <laughs> but there's a difference between being and having a better method, a better program, a better way of accomplishing the gospel, and attacking a person's motive for why they're doing it. Jesus says that's got to stop. Because if you do that, if you do that, then I, wanna, I want you to know three things if you judge incorrectly. Number one, you're going to expose yourself to the same judgment. I will be judged for what others say about others for what I say about others. Matthew twelve thirty five says, A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. And I tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. Do you know that was in the Bible? That's a tough one. I expose myself to the same judgment. Why would I want to do that? We're just hell-bent and on fire to tell somebody and give them a piece of our mind, which we probably can't afford to lose, but we're going to tell them anyway. Somebody once said, whatever goes around, comes around. I think this is kind of the closest scripture I can figure for that. You don't want to show mercy to somebody else? You want to judge them incorrectly? You want to personally condemn them? Your day's coming. You expose yourself to the same judgment. Look at Proverbs 6, verse 16. There are six things the Lord hates. No, seven things He detests. Now, whenever you see that in Scripture, it's six, yea, seven. In Amos, it has three, yea, four. The Hebrew writer hermeneutically was trying to emphasize the last point. In other words, he does. there are seven things the Lord detests, but when he says six, yea, seven, the emphasis is on the seventh one. So let's look through these seven and see what they are. Haughty eyes. Anybody see haughty eyes this week? Oops, I did. Might have been in that debate. A lying tongue? Ooh, oops. <laughs> Hands that kill the innocent? I can't even describe the emotions I had on that Friday when I thought the weather report was coming on. And all it was was this cold voice saying, the murdered body of Jessica Ridgway has been found. And then that was the end of the announcement. And I wept. Hands that shed innocent blood. God detests it. A heart that plots evil. I'm not making religious condemnation here, but I, I do not even understand in my wildest dreams where the Taliban is coming from. 
How do you plot that kind of evil? Feet that race to do wrong. A false witness who pours out lies. And here's the last one. This is the one that has emphasis. A person who sows discord in a family. That could be a church family too. God hates it. Did you know of these seven things? Three of them deal with the tongue. That's right. Three of them deal with the tongue. 17, a lying tongue. Verse 19, a false witness. Verse 19, a person who sows discard in a family with his mouth. Can I ask you a real personal question? Do any of these seven describe your method of operandus today, your MO? I don't know about you, but being critical, when I was young, I got a black belt in uh, being critical. (laughs) I had a PhD in that one. I was very opinionated. I had an opinion on everything. Now I check in with my wife to find out what my opinion is. (laughs) Amen, right, yeah. My point is, who wants to discord? Who wants to sow discord in a family? Who wants to be unmerciful that way? It just seems like some people are wired to kind of stir stuff up. They're never happy with an answer. They got to just keep digging and make it. You know, they they call it relentless pursuit of the truth. I call it sowing discord in the family. <laughs> There's a difference between finding out truth and sowing discord. If I demand perfection from others, then if I'm being judged by the same standard, I'm demanding perfection of myself, and that'll never happen. Number two, not only do I expose myself to the same judgment, I raise the standard of my own judgment. In verse two, it says, you'll be treated as, you're, as you treat others. The standard for using or for use in judging is the standard by which you'll be judged. What measure you give to others, it shall be measured unto you, and more. I think sometimes we tolerate very little from others. We have no patience, not, no understanding. We do not allow for weakness. We don't allow for circumstances, but rather we allow for nothing. And we turn into very merciless people. And I know that sometimes, can you believe it? It happens between husbands and wives. You're driving down the road. The wife says to the husband, you forgot to give me, some, you forgot to give me this piece of information. And the husband says, hey, no problem. When I get back to the office, I'll get it. She says, yeah, I've had a lot of luck with that. Well, that's kind of harsh, honey. Well, it's not about that. It's that you just don't remember. So if you had said something like, well, you know what? I didn't do it right and I should have written it down. Then I would have been happy. And they argue over these things. We don't show grace. We're not real merciful with each other. We don't sometimes allow for weakness. Whatever we are, we're divinely human as well. I don't know about you, but I want my mistakes covered up with love, don't you? James 3, it talked about somebody, I think in James 3, who didn't get to be a Sunday school teacher, and so he's upset. And James says, don't rush to be a teacher because teachers are judged by a higher standard. 
I will raise the standard of my own judgment when I'm starting to tell others. This is what's so scary about being a preacher. I've been doing this for around 40 years, been speaking. And I realize that every time I speak, if I haven't gone through it, by Wednesday of next week, I'll be going through it. That's why it's more fun, I think, to speak out of things that I've already gone through. <laughs> now, I know when I was younger, when I was really young, and I was 25 and in that area, between 25 and 30, and I was speaking on stuff, I would have people my age coming up to me at that age and putting their arm around me and say, Son, you're on the right track. <laughs> that was a great sermon today, but it's obvious you've never gone through it. <laughs> Now I've kind of gone through it. I hope it has a little more punch than if you didn't go through it. But I think that in the final analysis, the reason that I'm incapable or that I, that I do this judgmental thing is because I'm still not really hungering and thirsting for what God has to say on the subject. And the reason I'm not doing that is because there are days where I'm taking over the control of my own life. And there, that's because I really haven't been in a situation that day where I'm, you know, I guess I'm not sick and tired of running my own life. I really want to do that. And I'm still all the way back to point one where it says, you know what, when you save me, God, you got a good deal. I'm good looking, I'm talented, and the kingdom is better off with me. Really? i got news for you. You've got nothing. He's got everything. He's got the full package. To the loser, go to the spoils. <laughs> when you surrender, you get all the benefits. He's blessed you with every spiritual blessing. And you go to yourself and you repent and you say, How's, How stupid of me. How dumb was I here to think that I could have done as good a job as any. I'm so sorry, God, I've broken your heart. Now my heart is broken. Take over control of my life. And Lord, let me sit at your table and let me have your righteousness. Let me hunger and thirst for it, for your word. And when I know your word, I will apply your word to every situation. Ah, and I will be seen as being merciful. Is when we apply God's truth to a situation, that's when we are merciful. The third thing that I want you to do is to understand that you're incapable of judging others. You can't do it. It's not just a good idea to not do it. It's a very bad idea to try it because you have no capability of it. Why worry about the speck in your friend's eye? Get the log out of yours first. Take care of yourself first. We tend to judge according to ourselves. But we didn't have to let Scripture judge. Because then Christ is the standard, not us. Sometimes when we confront things and we judge things, that's why people turn to us and say, who do you think you are? Because they think we're comparing their sin to how great we are. You know, and I've got a few more don'ts in my life than you do. Oh, really? That's how we define Christianity as the naughty nine? The dirty, the, the dirty dozen? It's based on what I don't do? That person looks at you and says, well, you've got some faults too. 
That doesn't happen when we let the Word of God do the judging. When we make that the standard, we make Christ the standard. He came full of grace and truth. The Logos came among us. The Word came among us. The Word came among us and became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. When that becomes the standard, when He becomes the standard, and we apply His Word to situations, that's when we become merciful. It's the only way we can do mercy. And that's when we obtain mercy. The world reacts. They immediately want to throw it back. They ignore the Scripture. But we need to stand firm. We need to let Scripture speak. We don't want to give the world any opportunity to look at our lives and see some ingredient in our lives that disqualifies us. I understand that. I understand what it means to shoot the messenger and get, so that we can get rid of the message. We've learned in our political world that when you've lost the argument, you just attack the other person's character. That couldn't be any more evident than these last couple of weeks. It is so discouraging from both sides of the aisle. And I've been the chaplain of the Colorado Center for 14 years, and I've got friends on both sides of the aisle. And even them, even they are discouraged over their own party's reaction. Because the world doesn't do mercy. The world does judgmentalism. And Jesus says, don't judge. Don't try to go after a person's motive. You leave that to me. Leave it to me. You apply scripture and you will be sharing mercy. Well, what happens after mercy? What's coming? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they what? Shall see God. You see, once we've, once we've gotten to the point of mercy in our life, once we're letting Scripture judge the situations instead of us, once we're filled with grace and truth because it's really over our hungering and thirsting appetite, and we're now applying that to the situation, even our motives become pure. And you know what the world says? I see Jesus in you. I see this as a God thing. Ever had that somebody say that to you? Man, that was awesome what you did. I, I saw Jesus in you. And you say to yourself, i got to remember this moment. This was a good moment. Lord, thank you for a brief moment I gave honor to you. They saw God in this. All right, we'll pick it up next week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you that you are the one and the only true and good judge. May you have full honor in our lives today. May we not judge incorrectly. But you have said that we could judge correctly if we let Scripture and you be the standard. Help us to apply that today. And be men and women who are filled with grace and truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.